Well, good evening, everybody. It's great to see you. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. Are you nice and warm this evening? Maybe a little warm? Maybe, I don't know. That's good. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. For those of you who may not have met me, uh, Pastor Chris this week is uh, in California because it's cold here. Um, no, um, he's in California because he's one of the trustees with the International Mission Board, and they have one of their one of their regular meetings this week, and so he's there, and he misses being here, and uh, and so he know I know he's praying for you and thinking about you and all that. Uh, you know what? I'm I'm just very thankful for each and every one of you who are a part of this class. The whole idea that we would be focused on reading the Bible for all it's worth for understanding the Word of God as it's written in its context, for us to understand it and then for us to be able to, to, to cross that bridge of taking what we read in context and building that bridge to, to the principles that influence and affect our lives. And I'm, I'm just grateful for that. And it's been, it's been an incredible three weeks. How many of you have been with us? This is your fourth week. You've been with us the entire time. Yeah, that's awesome. You guys are rock stars. Thanks so much for doing that. And for those of you who are new with us tonight, thanks for jumping in. Rob Lewis has been driving the content for this, and he's done a fantastic job. I'm so thankful for you. Can we celebrate that? That's awesome. Thank you very, very much. I'm grateful. For those of you who uh, may have come in a little bit late, or maybe you missed some notes, there are some additional notes from previous weeks up here. So after we get finished this evening, please feel free to go ahead and come up and grab some of those and just see what's taken place over the past several weeks. And then tonight's content is available for everyone. That's going to be that's going to be great. Uh, I want us to do a couple of things. I just kind of want to set a tone for tonight. And then I want us to pray together uh, in just a moment. And then I'll hand it over to Rob. I want to set up what we're going to pray about here in just a moment. Uh, when I get done introducing this section, I'm going to go visit with a family. I don't know how many of you know Skylar Combs, um, but Skylar has played bass guitar with us. He and his family have been members here for several years. Angie Combs is his wife. He has four kids. Skylar was 42, and he passed away suddenly uh, yesterday. It was uh, tragic. It was unexpected. And, and so I'm going to go visit with Angie here in just a little bit and, and with Allie as their daughter and Roy as their, their son. And it's just been kind of a... It's been a tough week. Uh, Skyler worked for Ray Adcock, so if you've ever been over to Christian Brothers Automotive, Skyler was the one generally behind the desk uh, who was doing that. So um, I'm not exactly certain what God's doing in the life of our church, but since about December 15th, we've averaged about a funeral a week. Some of them, um, some of them, very young people, and for me, I've got three funerals in the next ten days, um, and so. Uh, for the, I know it's true for our entire staff and for the families that are involved. If you could be just kind of praying that God would just make his, uh, the, the grace that is needed during moments of grief necessary. I think Chris has said it several times that, that when we're in seminary, they prepare you for how to preach a funeral, but they don't prepare you for how to deal with the emotions of the death of a friend. And uh, that, that seems to have happened frequently. So as we pray in just a few moments, um, I hope that, that you'll be thinking of those families and you'll be thinking of our staff as you do that. That would be, that would be great. Um, man, that's a great somber note to begin with, isn't it? Why don't we pray now and then I'll do the rest of the introduction. Let's do that. Father, I'm grateful for you. And I'm grateful for the grace that you've given to us and for the mercy that you've shown us. I'm grateful for the people that you surround us with and just the loving kindness that you have given to us by giving us one another and by giving us your son, and by giving us your forgiveness, and by giving us your word. I pray right now for Angie and for her family. I'm so grateful for the ministry that Skylar had. He was a man who served God in his generation, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the encouragement that he was and is to me. And I pray that you would be with Angie and her family right now, that you would allow them to know your presence, that they would draw near to you, and that they would recognize that they're not alone. So I pray that as we and just so many other people reach out and minister to her that, and, and to them, that, that they would receive that, and that in the days ahead that you would be a father to the fatherless, and that you would just help them. So, Father, thank you for your word that teaches us that in moments just like these, that while we may not like it and while we may not understand it, we can trust you because you always prove yourself to be faithful. And because you're faithful as believers, we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. So thank you for the hope that's found in Christ. We love you, Father. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys very much for letting us pray for that. Just by way of introduction, I just want to remind us of something. Um, What you're doing tonight and what you've been doing these past four weeks is a noble effort. It is a noble thing for you to dig deep into God's Word and to understand it, to be able to pick it apart and to, to understand the context and the meaning and the significance. Really, jot and tittle, word by word, note for note, section by section, paragraph by paragraph, to be able to dig into it and understand it is so beneficial and so valuable. My college pastor, Mike Compton, said one of the most unique things about Scripture is that Scripture is the only book you can read, and when you read it, always have the author present with you. And I love that, that idea that every time you open up that book, the Holy Spirit of God has the opportunity to be the counselor, the one who is the the great teacher and the interpreter and the one who shows you what you need to know as you use these tools and these practices that Rob's been teaching, just of what it takes to, to to dig in and to understand the Word. I'm also reminded of some verses of Scripture that, that really point us to the why. Why are we digging into this word? Well, uh, there seem to be some obvious answers to that question. Well, it's the revealed word of God. It teaches us some history things. It teaches us some all of these things. But I think Scripture itself shows us and tells us the why. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've, whom you've sent, whom he sent. And in 1 John 5, it says, These things I have written to you, that you might know that you have eternal life. And then um, Paul, man, if you think about Paul's story, just this idea that he was a man who was completely opposed to Christianity, and then his life was fully transformed by the gospel, to the extent that he once terrorized Christians, and now he's the one who's the great evangelist and the great missionary. Galatians 1, 23 and 24, I love his testimony in, those, in that passage because Paul says, these churches that I was trying to go to, they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. And I, I think that kind of testimony is just, it's just brilliant what God did in Paul's life. And then you get to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul really declares what his purpose is. For my determined purpose is that I might know God, that I might become progressively more deeply and more intimately acquainted him, with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more, more deeply and more clearly. And I think that verse, Philippians 3.10, that's the amplified version of it. I think that defines the why behind why we're digging into Scripture so deeply and taking it so seriously. Why? Well, because my determined purpose is to know God. That I might progressively, one verse at a time, one passage at a time, that I might progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of His person more strongly and more clearly. And so I hope that as you read and as you study and as you dig and as you write, I hope that it's for something more than winning arguments, and I hope that it's for something more than just head knowledge. I hope that it's through his word that you discover the knowledge of who he is, that you draw close to him in a deep and an intimate relationship with him. The last passage of scripture I want to remind us of is Proverbs chapter 2. It says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice to understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice. He preserves the way of saints. That's why we do this. We do this so that we can know him deeply and intimately. So thank you for taking your time to dig deeply into God's word. Rob? You guys have done a great job showing up faithfully for four weeks, and 
Uh, it is a lot of material. We have packed so much into four weeks. And so thank you for hanging in there, sticking, sticking with me, hanging uh, the whole way. Uh, tonight is going to be a good night for us to try to wrap our heads around all of the different things we've learned in the past three weeks. We're going to spend uh, about 30 minutes tonight working in our table. So first things first, if there's, hopefully, looks like everyone's got at least three people. Um, if, if, if you don't have at least three people, join another table because we're going we're gonna to want to work together. We're going to spend about 30 minutes tonight working at our tables. So some, uh, some of the resources you have on your table right now will be part of what you work with. Uh, the colorful one that's got the pink and red and all of that, that's this evening's handout. That's the, the basic summary, high-level view of what we're trying to accomplish tonight and some of the takeaways. So that's already packaged for you. Uh, the other documents, let me walk you through those real quick, and then I'll explain some of what we're going to do tonight as we jump in. So the other document, it's got highlighter on it, and it is, uh, it's, it's actually just a one-pager that has some highlighting. Each table should have at least two. Uh, I've got several more copies up here if we need any more, but what, not everyone needs one of those, but at least every table should have two. What that is is just a reference. Can anyone tell me where I got that? Does anyone recognize it? Do, yes, yes, the Baptist faith and message, all right? I know everyone spends their evenings before they go to sleep reading the Baptist faith and message. That's such a great thing to do. Uh, that's an excerpt from the Baptist Faith and Message, uh, and I want every table to have that. It's not a creed, it's not a confession of faith, but it is a statement of faith. And in most Baptist churches, most Southern Baptist churches would require you to sign a statement of faith when you join. And in that statement of faith, it's probably going to ask you, do you agree with the Baptist Faith and Message? Uh, it's a good document. Uh, I agree, absolutely, with the Baptist faith and message. It is a great document. It's a succinct document. But that little reference right there will have a little bit of what we're going to do tonight. It's going to have a little bit of, of impact and application for tonight. So have that handy. The other document you have is a piece of paper that has some uh, you know, uh, spots on it for you to write. It looks like this. And I know it's hard to see from far away but it'll be the interpretation and application exercise. That's gonna be the main document you're actually gonna work with tonight. And let me walk you through it real quick and then we'll jump in. So what you'll see is you'll see three different resource sets. Resource set one includes the ESV expository commentary plus the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. What I have up here is I have set one, set two, and set three. You at your table have to pick two. You can't get all three. You got you to gotta decide on which two you're going to use because we're going to spend about 10 minutes with each one of those. And then we'll spend a few minutes summarizing, coming up with our one-sentence interpretation and some applications that we uh, see from the text. So what we will do tonight, the exercise we will do when we get there, is you will work as a group in your table to, oops, to work through James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, to actually come up with a one-sentence interpretation of that scripture, that's your goal. That's a tough passage, and I know it's going to be fun for everyone to discuss that amongst you, your, your tables. You'll have commentaries to help you, and you'll also have some study aids to help you. So, for example, set one is the ESV expository commentary set on that passage. Then you'll also have the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, which gives a theological definition of the word faith. Okay, so that's set one. Set two is the Expositor's Bible Commentary, and you'll also get a resource of John Frame Systematic Theology, taking a look at faith. And then the third set is the Pillar New Testament Commentary. Uh, that one specifically is written by the scholar Douglas Moo. And you'll have a resource uh, from Wayne Gruden, Systematic Theology, taking a look at those. So these are some scholarly resources that will help you as you work as a table to come up with a one-sentence interpretation 
and some application tonight. So we're going to have an opportunity to put all the things that we've been working on in practice tonight so there will be a lot of hands-on time tonight. I won't be speaking tonight as much as I usually do, and you probably are thankful for that. And uh, we'll work together a lot. But as we've done every week, we've got some resources to give away. First hand I see gets, oh, she wins it. All right. This is Weakness, of the Way, Weakness is the Way by J.I. Packer. We're actually going to be doing this in DU. I'll be teaching this uh, at Calvary on Sunday nights and then teaching it here uh, on Wednesday nights. It is an incredible little book on 2 on, uh, Corinthians talking about finding our affirmation, encouragement, and strength in Christ. So that's an excellent book. Do we have any teachers in the room? Anyone who teaches Sunday school? All right. I th- oh, teacher, teacher. Uh, what's your name back there in the yellow? Oh, teacher, teacher. Any Sunday school teachers? Kit, Kit wins. <laughs> Sorry, Bruce, he did it first. You're like haphazard. Kit, all right, so what you got here, Kit, is the NIV application commentary uh, written by Douglas Moo. It's an excellent resource. Uh, it's an NIV, so I got to get it out of my library. <laughs> You're welcome. This, this evening, people have been giving me a hard time about my, my uh, comments about the NIV last week, and I, and I love it. Uh, they're like, we're going to support your wife. We're going to bring our NIV, NIVs tonight. So uh, that's awesome. I brought my little, uh, little ESV here, uh, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit more of a challenge. I, I don't know about you, but I think of like Bibles kind of like I think of guns. Like this is my, this is my little sidearm, right? Uh, and then I've got my study Bible, and that's like my 50 cal, right? Uh, and then my preaching Bible, that's like my AR-15, you know, for up close, you know. I don't know, some weird Southern Baptist stuff, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I got my sidearm tonight, so this is what I'll be working out of. But let's jump in now uh, and, and, and take a look at what we're going to do for this evening. So as we get started... I want to refresh our memories on what we accomplished last week. Our main objective last week was to get into the immediate context. So remember the circles of context. I'm not going to write them all down. But what we had was we had in the very center was the actual sentence or word that was being analyzed. And then you had another circle outside of that. And then you had another circle and we need to increase the budget for some markers. <laughs> Let's try the blue one. Maybe the blue one's a winner. No. <laughs> I don't have any markers tonight. All right. Let's see if this little bitty tiny one will work. All right. There we go. The Lord shall provide. Okay, so some big circles here. All right, so in here we would have said this is the actual word or the sentence, so on and so forth. Then you back out and then you've got the immediate context. And then you back out a little bit further and you start to talk about things like the rest of the context, like the general context. And that would include uh, the rest of, say, maybe the chapter it would include maybe the whole book. What's that book's genre, right? Is this historical narrative? Is this poetry? Is it apocalyptic literature like Revelation? Uh, it, what, what kind of a book is it? Then we got the author, all that good stuff we start to talk about. And further and further out, we would talk about the, does this author have any other writings? What testament is this New Testament? Or is it Old Testament? And then we would say, What's its place in the entire Bible? If we didn't have this book in the Bible, what would we be missing? So that's kind of what we talk about when we talk about the circles of context as we zoom out. But what we did last week was we focused in on the immediate context. And this is how we would go about getting down deep into the weeds in the immediate context. So what we were trying to do was take a look at 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and really dig into the weeds to see what was going on, paying attention to the literary context. What, what types of literary devices are being used to help us understand what this text says? If you remember, every week we say, do not worry about what the text means or how to apply the text. 
until you've first done the work to understand what the text what? Says. Stop. Slow down. What does it say? Because you cannot get to meaning, much less application, until you first look at what the text says. And we have the bad habit of reading our scriptures so quickly. And we come to it, as we've said before, with our own presuppositions, with our own ideas. We think a lot of times when we come to this and we read something, we've read it 10 times before, we, we know what this means. But what we have to do is question our assumptions and say, I don't know what it means. Teach me, Lord. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've looked at this completely wrong for so long, and now today's the day that you'll open my eyes to let me see it differently. Now, that's not to say that you're, you go into complete, unmitigated skepticism, and you just, I have no idea what this says. That's not my point. The point is, is don't come to it with such a great confidence that you read so quickly that you never dig in. You never allow time for the word to question your assumptions. You never allow the word to speak to you because you're already going so quick because you think you already know what it says, right? So we got to slow down. We've got to allow time for the Lord uh, to work in our hearts and our minds. But how he does that is, is not a miracle per se. It really comes through some basic things that we do when we write any other, uh, when we read any other type of writing. If I go to Swiss Family Robinson, which is probably the best children's book ever written, not knowing, I guess no one else cares, if you've read it, you'll, you'll agree with me. When I read Swiss Family Robinson, when I read it as a kid, I didn't read it and think, oh, I know how the story goes. I read it searching for where this plot would develop. Who are these characters? What was going to happen? They're going to live in a treehouse, then they leave the treehouse, they're going to build a house in a cave, and maybe someone's going to find them one day. You, know, you read it as if you don't know the rest of the story. You read it as just mining for clues so you can put the whole thing together. The Bible is no different. So we pay attention to literary devices, we pay attention to context, and we always, we always say the author controls the meaning. It's the reader's job and responsibility to find and interpret the meaning. But the author controls and determines the meaning. So last week we did this. We took a look at verbs, all the yellow ones, right? So we said, this is interesting. If he heard, seen, looked, touched, made manifest, seen. We see all these and we start to say, man, it starts to look like an eyewitness account. Somebody who's had a personal experience with Christ. And, and, and then we saw, okay, look at these nouns uh, and these pronouns. We, we, are, you, you, us. Who's we? Who's us? Who's you? Right? We've got to answer those questions. Um, and so that's what we did last week. Did anybody take time to do that homework uh, this week? Anybody? All right, Kevin brought his. What, what passage did you do, Kevin? Psalm 23? Excellent, excellent. Anybody else? I saw someone else throw a hand up over there. Yes, what'd you do? That's perfect, yeah. So, so you did the rest of the Philippians 1? Very good, very good. So I hope if you didn't do that, pick some passage it doesn't matter what passage, and, and go into the weeds like this. And see, so we drew lines making connections, important relationships. We underlined repeated words like we saw, heard, and seen, which all those were repeat, repeated words, fellowship. Um, those, were, those were important things, but also we made connections like testify. It was tied to writing. It was tied to proclaim, which is tied to proclaim again off to the other side. Do you see that? So you start to see how things start to, to come together and work together. And it helps for major themes in the passage to start to become visible. It starts to become something you can actually see and organize in your mind in a different way. All right, so that's what we were doing last week. This week, we're going to get into step four and step five. Step four is meditation and interpretation. So this is where we've put the rubber to the road. We've done three weeks to get to this point. And so many of us, before we really have a method, we head straight to interpretation and application. We skip, we skip the, all the other stuff and we go straight to, what does this mean and how do I apply it? Well, thankfully, we're finally ready for that step. So we're going to do that tonight. So um, meditation is our first step. I'm going to ask this question. What comes to mind when you think of meditation? Anybody? 
Do what? Thinking. Okay, yes, and we meditate. We've got to use our mind. Anybody else? Yoga? Yeah, okay. Let God speak to you. Yes, good. Quiet. Very good. Absolutely, that helps. Listen, focus. Good. Communication. All right. You know what's interesting is that in our modern times, when you think, uh, most people think of meditation, they're thinking of actually emptying their minds. Isn't that, isn't that strange? You think about getting to this clearing, getting to this Zen state, getting to this where there's nothing. And there's, I read a book uh, recently for a, a class, which was a crazy class. It was uh, World Religions and Modern Science, and we focused on neuroscience of religion. And one of the books I had to read was Sam Harris's Waking Up. And it was all about how the uh, idea of self is an illusion that you need to transcend and escape. And so he recommended, like, considering yourself with no head. Yeah, so you, you, sit, you sit there and go, mm, I don't have a head, I'm nobody. And, you just, and when you're reading this stuff, I'm like, what in the world is going on? But that's, that's part of what they would think is a good exercise to get to the spirituality. Spiritual, um, but not religious. Throw away religion, but be spiritual. How do you do it? Empty your mind. But meditation from a biblical concept, from a biblical perspective, is not emptying your mind. From a biblical perspective, it's actually to fill your mind. The biblical concept of meditation, the approach that was used in both the Old Testament and New Testament times was to fill the mind with the Word of God, to put the precepts of God front and center and to intentionally and continually focus on them. So there's this modern idea of meditation as an emptying of your mind, clearing your mind. The biblical concept is to actually fill your mind and to focus your mind on the Word of God. And so how do you do that? Well, there's a couple of ways that we can do that. Um, the Hebrew term seah brings out the mental aspect in most contexts and essentially means to muse about or consider deeply and at length, if you will, a talking in the mind. So let's stop right there for just a second. Have you ever, have you ever talked to yourself in your mind? Of course we all have, right? Have, have you ever wasted so much time building these uh, fake scenarios that'll never, ever happen, but you have all the answers to them, right? Well, if they said this, I would say this back to them, right? How many's ever done that? Yeah, right, we all have done it, right? Sometimes we're like, man, how much time have I wasted? This stuff isn't even real. But what you've done is you did that self-talk. You're talking to yourself. You're building these scenarios. You're musing. You're meditating, in a sense. So what we've got to do is to learn how to muse about and consider deeply at length with this idea of talking in the mind, but not just about anything, about the biblical concept we're wrestling with. Uh, Walt Russell goes on, he says, there's also a speech aspect to meditation, to mutter or speak or read in an undertone. This verbal aspect of meditation is what God commanded Joshua to do with the book of the law so that he muttered it day and night, Joshua 1.8. And that's the idea. Have you ever seen, uh, maybe in a movie or a video, where there's, there's uh, the Jewish people would walk around with scriptures and they're kind of, they're muttering. That, that is the verbal aspect of meditation. So meditation is a mental exercise, but there's also a verbal part of it. And it's, it's a really interesting thing to practice. Um, in, 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 your, in your prayer time, in your private time, to speak the word, to, to talk, talk it out, and verbalize it. And this was actually a practice that was applied all the time back in the day, to mutter, to have this undertone, a quiet muttering of the word, to mutter. And this is actually what Joshua was commanded to do with the book of the law. Um, so you imagine Joshua walking around with the Torah. That's the book of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Muttering, reading, putting that just front and center of his mind. That's what Joshua was doing. And when Joshua was doing that, he literally was participating in meditation. So uh, that book by Walt Russell, Playing with Fire, is an excellent book on meditation. And he lists uh, these different classical practices of spiritually reading the Bible. So the first one, reading. We receive the information of the text before us, and we've been talking a lot about that. This class is about that. 
how to read the Bible. What does it say? So there's a part of that, and that's definitely a classical practice of spiritually reading the Bible. We receive the information of the text before us. Second, meditate. We begin processing it by chewing on it. And then third, dialoguing. Flowing out of our meditation is our personal dialogue with God about the text's meaning and our emotional response to it. Have you ever read a passage and then you just say, Lord, what does this mean? And, and, or, or maybe you confess to yourself, this makes me feel a certain way. Maybe it's joy. Maybe it's a great feeling. Or maybe it's, this is really sad. How, how could you do that? Right? And there's a lot of people who come to the Word and they see something, they read something, and it causes them to have an emotional response. And sometimes that can be a negative thing. And it can derail them quite hard. And there's other times we read the word and we're just like, that's what I needed. You know, when you think about when Jesus says the words, he says, I didn't come to heal those who are well, but those who are sick. Those who are well need no physician, but those who are sick do. You read that and you're like, yes. Like that makes you feel like, yes, right? Jesus says, come to me, all who are burdened, right? I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. You're like, yes. Then there's other parts where it says, if you want to see God, then you've got to be holy. You know, Hebrews 12, you're like, whoa, okay. Those are the ones you muse and you mutter and you say, this Lord, I don't know. What does this mean? It's a lot of 1 John. When we read 1 John, he's like, if you uh, think that you have fellowship with God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. Okay, right? So you, 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 you respond emotionally to that. That's part of the exercise of meditating and dialoguing. And then fourth, contemplation. He says, lastly, we release our will to God by choosing to wait on his direction and will for us in light of the emphasis of the text. This is an important part of what we're trying to do in this whole study. That whole slowing down in practice is contemplation and saying, Lord, I do not want to rush. I don't want to go before you because if I'm going to and rightly understand, interpret, and apply this, I want you involved in that. I want my heart to be pure in this. I don't want to read this for my own motivations to support my own doctrine, right? We said that. Every one of us come to the Word with our own ideas. We've all got theological concepts and, and, and frameworks that we're committed to. Um, there's many different things that you can, you can sign up for. Maybe you can't tell anybody else what the distinctives of uh, any denomination are. I don't know if, if we just did a quick survey. Um, if I said, can everyone tell me the difference between a Southern Baptist and a Free Will Baptist? Could you do it? You, okay, yeah. Could you, okay, a, a Baptist uh, in general and a Presbyterian. A Presbyterian and a Lutheran, right? You, an Anglican, an Episcopal. All of these different denominations have a theological framework that they bring to the text, do they not? We are no different. We're Southern Baptists. Well, guess what? That, Southern Baptists haven't been around forever. <laughs> I know some will trace it back to Paul, but I don't, I don't know if that's quite right. So think about that, though. We all bring our theological presuppositions to the table, and what we've got to say is, Lord, as I read this text, I want to contemplate it, and if... If this text is going to challenge me to change my theology, I'm willing to do it. That's the humble heart we've got to have. And that's hard because there's a lot of sacred cows out there. We've got a lot of them. Ooh, yeah. Thanks, Steve. So contemplation is absolutely a critical part of this. We release, we release our will to God, as Walt says, choosing to wait on his direction and will for us in light of the emphasis of the text. Now, let me just say one word of caution. That doesn't mean to get into analysis paralysis where you just wait forever. You say, I can't, I can't, I can't stand anywhere on this text. You know, I'm waiting for the Lord to write it in the clouds and he'll let me know by hopefully next Sunday what in the world this means. That's not, that's not what he's getting at, right? It's that slow down, wait on the Lord, release your will to the Lord. Um, but there does come a time where you got to take a stand. You say, best I can understand, this is what the text means. Here I stand. Will my mind change? Will I learn more? Yes. But today, here is where I stand. I love the, the saying that, you know, an open mind is a good thing, but a perpetually open mind is like a perpetually open mouth. If it never closes on anything, it's useless. 
right? A perpetually open mind is like a perpetually open mouth. If it never closes on anything, it's useless, right? And we say this to our kids all the time when they're like, like caught fish, you know, yeah. So the mouth just open, right? So don't, don't take the scripture like that and say, I'm just going to keep my mind open forever. I don't, I don't have any idea what any of it means, but I'm open-minded. No, that's pretty useless as well, all right? Can we all, can we all agree on that? That's not a spiritual uh, discipline to employ. It's just a perpetual openness that never, ever takes a stand anywhere. All right, so let's jump in here. So some, pr- some practical steps to meditation. Schedule time. One long block is better than several short blocks of time each week. This is really good. Sometimes it's very hard for us in our busy schedules to do well at, at order on our day and to spend time in the Word. And let's just be honest, if, if you're struggling to get in good time every day, it would be better for you to order your week so that you have at least one good session where you have plenty of time to meditate and spend in the Word than a bunch of little sprinkled out ones where you're just rushed and you really aren't there anyways. And you're convincing yourself you're there, but you're not really there. Now, I would still recommend read the Word every single day. But if you don't have time to actually get in and meditate on the Word every single day, at least choose one day where you can say, I'm going to give an hour to this, and then really do it. That is way better than thinking you're going to get any true meditation in five or ten minutes every day. Does that make sense? So that's one practical step. Another one is after reading, go for a walk to quiet your heart and mind. Uh, A third one is to journal as you pray to God about the text. This is a very good practice. Write it down. Wrestle with the Lord in writing. And it's neat to go back and visit that stuff later to see how you've grown and how your understanding of the text can, can, can get better, right? Fourth, read study notes and commentaries, and we're going to do a little bit of that tonight. And then fifth, listen to sermons, prayerfully considering the exposition of the text. This is very helpful. If you have uh, trusted theologians and preachers who you know of um, and have access to some of their sermons, it is very good to hear what their take is. And I would recommend getting many different sermons, many different people's takes on it. Uh, so, so you can diversify. If you only listen to one preacher only all the time, that, that can be quite unhealthy. You want to drink from many different wells. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with all of them, but it is good to get different counsel and different opinions. That doesn't mean go into heretical people. If you know someone's a false teacher, don't waste your time in the name of diversity. That's not the point. There's some diversity that should be excluded, right, Uh, or avoided. But it is good if you have access to sermons on a specific passage that you would like to understand, it is really good to hear and prayerfully consider their exposition of the text. Now, if they start and they read the text and they don't actually exposit it, they read it and then they go on this whole uh, 45-minute monologue about some of their opinions that are completely unrelated to the text, you've just wasted your time. You need to find someone who's actually an expository preacher to be able to do this well, right? Does everyone know what an expository preacher is? Lloyd-Jones is a good one, yes. Someone who exposits the word. Someone who says, let me expound on what's here. Not, hey, let me lay this as a foundation, and on top of that, I'll build all sorts of my own opinions and and wisdom to share with you. It's actually going through the verses, going through the text, and saying, this is what's here. Let me illuminate it for you. Let Let me pull it out. Yes, Tiffany. Uh, Chris and I do it. (laughs) I'm just joking. Uh, Yeah, so there's a few that are really good, um, and I know he's a little less popular these days because of some of his rude comments, but John MacArthur is recommended. uh, He is one of the best expository preachers of our time, even if he's kind of in the hot seat right now. He's a good one. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a guy who lived uh, in the 20th century. He is the one that's actually credited with bringing expository preaching back to the church, incredible stuff there. Highly recommend uh, his work. There's a number of others, but there's, there's a few that I would, I would definitely highly recommend um, that you can get a good start with. So let's continue on uh, with what we're going to try to cover this evening. So we're going to get into the actual step of interpretation, which the goal is rightly understand what the text means, all right? So 
Philippians 1, 3 through 11, this is a passage that we've been working with a little bit. Uh, We started to kind of plot it out a little bit last week. Uh, It says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Remember we said, okay, hang on, he's using these pronouns, I and my and you. What do we have to do in order to figure out who who those are referring to? What do we have to do? Go back. Why? As it starts in verse 3. So we have to look back up at verse 1 to understand that it's Paul and Timothy talking to these people uh, in the church in Philippi, right? So let me show you real quick. This is my one-sentence summary, my one-sentence interpretation of Philippians 1, 3 through 11. Remember I told you it's okay to do some comma abuse? But that is one sentence. My professor said, give me a one sentence. I said, I will. <laughs> Don't count the commas, but I'll give you one sentence. This is, this is my one sentence. So I believe this is a good interpretation of Philippians 1, 3 through 11. Paul wanted to express his affection towards the saints of Philippi by letting them know that he was thankful for them, prayed for them often, and was confident that God would continue the, work, the good work he began, including their ongoing increase in love, knowledge, discernment, purity, and fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ to bring Oh, man. Glory and praise to God. (laughs) See there? I should have got a bad grade on that. Someone should have called me out. Glory. Glory is the word I was going for. All right. So that was my one-sentence summary, and I know it's funny that that's one sentence, but that's one sentence. That's the kind of thing that we're looking for here tonight on your one-sentence interpretation of James 2. 14 through 17. That's the kind of idea. And what did I do? Well, I tried to grab big ideas and summarize them. I tried to look for major themes that were clear in the passage uh, and come up with what was actually trying to be communicated. So this was my attempt at that, all right? So uh, we're going to take a look at some different study guides and, and aids. These are a couple of books from my office at Calvary, top left. Uh, uh, all of that stuff is pure commentary stuff. So I've got the Expositor's Bible Commentary, uh, ESV Commentary, New American stuff, uh, Calvin, Spurgeon on the right. I've got a ton more different ones. So I highly recommend if you don't have any books at all, you don't have any commentaries, start buying some. It's, you, they're expensive, so it's an investment. You can't buy them all at, at once. Um, at least I try to, but I found that you can't. Uh, Amazon is a great resource. You can find a lot of them used. I highly recommend uh, Amazon, but there's a lot of other sources out there. If you're going to go for uh, just you know, very good introduction ones, there's one on the very bottom right. It's the white one in the stack of black books. That's F.F. Uh, F. Bruce's uh, Bible commentary. It's just a whole Bible commentary, all the whole Bible in one volume by F.F. F. Bruce. That's a very good entry commentary. You've got to think about what kinds of commentaries you want. Some of them are pastoral. Uh, I've got some of them down here. Uh, like this one is J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle has some incredible stuff. This is his new uh, expository thoughts on the gospel. So these were only the gospels. So this one's Matthew, but I got the whole set. Incredible for a pastoral perspective. Uh, There's a difference between scholarly and pastoral. Pastoral is going to get to the heart. It's going to show you, hey, here's some stuff that you're going to want to preach about. Solid stuff, but they're not going to go super hardcore and all the syntax and all the Greek and Hebrew and all the different uh, critical theories on the text. Others will, like this. This is a scholarly version. Uh, This is the Pillar New Testament commentary. This one's the letter of James by the scholar Douglas Moo. This one here is going to be less heartfelt, less, uh, you know, quick, easy, nice application that you can just really throw out there. This is going to be more that hey, I really want to dig down next level. What's the history? How has this been interpreted in the past by many different scholars? What's your best uh, interpretation based on all of that? So there's a more of a critical analysis that goes into that. Some others like this, this, this is one of my favorite sets, and they don't have them all released yet. How many do they have, Jonathan? Five. There's five of them, uh, and they're releasing them in kind of a weird order. So this is volume 12. So I think I have like, uh, I, have, I have all five of them, but this is Hebrews to Revelation, but this is the ESV expository commentary. 
So this is obviously going to be keyed to the ESV translation, but this is put together by a group of scholars, and it is absolutely gold. Um, I, like I said, they're just now releasing them. This is a good medium ground to me between that pastoral commentary and that really dry <laughs> scholarly commentary. That's one of my favorites. Then there's a very general but yet still scholarly, which is the expositor's Bible commentary. That whole set, though, the only problem with those is they're expensive. That whole set's like $500. So you kind of, you know, you got to, it's an investment. Um, I highly recommend, though, over the years, put a little bit of money away uh, and, 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 and do that. The joke at my house is buy books if you have a little bit of money left over, buy some food, right? I stole that from uh, someone else, but that's basically it. It's like, oh, hey, Amazon's here today. Good. Where are we going to put them? I don't know. <laughs> so, but I would highly encourage that. So we're going to do some exercise tonight, right? So a couple of, of recommendations. ESV Study Bible, for me personally, I highly recommend that. Uh, there's many other good study Bibles out there. It's not the only one. Don't hear me saying that. ESV is one of my favorite translations, but that's not the only one out there. Uh, NIV Study Bible is a great study Bible. I have one. I used one for years. Uh, there's many other study Bibles. There's the Reformation Study Bible. Uh, there's the uh, MacArthur Study Bible. There's, a, there's all sorts of different study Bibles out there. But as we said last week, know what the translation philosophy of the Bible is. Every translation has a translation philosophy. Understand it and make sure you agree with it and, not, and you know what you're getting, all right? So those, those are a couple. Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, that's this big one right here. If I could only have one resource uh, besides commentaries, that would be it. It literally is a theological dictionary. You look up any word that you would want to, like look up Reformation, Go to the R section and look up Reformation, and it's going to have really good content on a good summary and definition of what the Reformation was and who were the key players, that kind of thing. Helpful, helpful stuff. Uh, Matthew Henry commentaries. Who's heard of Matthew Henry? Hopefully everybody's heard of Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry is the, one of the good old boys uh, who lived uh, 1700s, and just an incredible mind for the Lord, and his commentaries are available online for free. If you type in Matthew Henry Bible Commentary, you'll go to a website, I think it's biblestudytools.com, and you can look at any one of his commentaries, all for free online. I use them all the time. It's really a good starting place. Yes, Chris? Yes, the Blue Letter Bible apps, another, another great resource. Yep, thank you. For free. You don't have to buy any of them. Uh, the hard copies are cheap and readily available. Uh, I got a set at my house, and I got a set at, at Calvary in my office. But I'll be honest with you, most of the time I just get online, and I pull it up, and then I copy and paste it if I'm going to put it somewhere. So it's online for free. Very, very good stuff. Uh, expositor, uh, expositor's Bible commentaries, just talked about those a little bit. The New American Bible commentaries, a little more scholarly. Uh, Pillar New Testament, definitely scholarly. All right, and then preaching the word commentaries, edited by, edited by R. Kent Hughes. If you can get a hold of these, even if it's just one book at a time, these are gold from a pastoral perspective. If you teach, these are the ones that you really want to get a hold of. Um, when we did a series on Genesis, I, I, went, I went and got one. It was an incredible help to me. Uh, when we did Ecclesiastes, I would go to R. Kent Hughes' stuff and like, wow, these are, these are gold mines in here. So highly recommend that set if you teach at all. Uh, and so let me keep on going here. Concise Theology by J.I. Packer, excellent little book. And then Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Uh, Wayne Grudem is one of, those, one of those guys who's just accepted across the lines. Uh, I, I, will, I will freely admit, if you read his stuff, he is a Reformed theologian, so if that's something that causes you heartburn, okay, then have to deal with that. Pretty much every intro to systematic theology when you go to seminary, doesn't matter what seminary you go to, you're going to get Wayne Grudem stuff. Very good entry-level systematic theology. Uh, I have John Frame up here too, kind of like that next gear um, if you want to get a little bit heavier. And then Dogmatic Theology by William Shedd. A little bit harder to read, but one of the best uh, on uh, systematic theology. And they called it Dogmatic Theology back in the day, so don't, don't get too hung up on that. All right, so 
Let's get into our practice time here. We already know what passage we're going to be dealing with. Um, but before we get into that, I've been talking a lot and quickly. Are there any questions that anybody has so far? All right. Let's jump into this. All right, so we know what our passage is. This is the time to get this little paper ready. If you need a pen in the back of every chair, uh, there's pens available. Get those out. Um, I'm going to have my buddy Jonathan Watts helping out a little bit. Jonathan Watts is in seminary. He's finished a hermeneutics class. He's going to be walking around the tables with me. We're going to be just making sure that if there's any questions or anyone needs anything, um, we'll be able to, to do that. But what we're going to do is take a look at this passage, right? Focusing on verse 17, which says, So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Has anyone read that one before? Hopefully everybody. Okay, has anyone ever struggled with that one before? That's a tough one, isn't it? You read that and you go, what? What did Paul say? Right? What did Paul say? So I'm giving you hard ones. I'm giving you tough passages. We're all adults here. We can struggle through this. I'm really looking forward to the conversation that you guys have around your tables as we wrestle through this because this is the word of God. Uh, many theologians struggled with this. Definitely the reformers struggled with it. Martin Luther, who was, I would say, obsessively ate up with justification alone. Remember the five solas of the Reformation? Uh, he didn't like the book of James. He came around to it, but at, at, at first he's like, this is the epistle of straw. He didn't like it, right? Because it had some hard things to say, especially when you're willing to die for the doctrine that we are saved um, by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone which is the Reformation motto, one of the five solos, solas. So we're going to wrestle with this. Um, but I want you to first tell me what this passage doesn't mean. Can anyone tell me what it doesn't mean? Okay, we're not saved by works. Very good. Anybody else? Working hard won't get you to heaven. All right. Very good. Anybody else? What does it not mean? You know, because I think a lot of times what we'll do is we'll come to the text and come to a hard text, and we're not sure what to do with it, but the least we can come up with is what does it not mean, right? Have you ever done that? Like, I don't know what it means, but I know what it doesn't mean. So let's get that out of the way. What does it not mean? And maybe... Maybe that's exhausted it. That's all we can say. Well, I want to put up here, just so that we're all on the same page, it does not mean this. The, form, the formula is not faith plus works equals salvation. That is not what it means. All right? Well, we know, as we just said, Paul had some things to say about this, didn't he? Romans 4, 1 through 5. What then shall we say? was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So there's often a sense of tension between Paul and James. And that happens, I would say, at the popular level. Most, most uh, I, this sounds, sounds weird, but most scholars, most preachers don't feel that tension because at some point you're forced to work through it. Um, there's not tension here. I know it seems like there's tension, but we're going to try to exercise this a little bit to come to this. But what we know it does not say is it does not say something that would contradict Paul. Paul says that you're not saved by works. Then what is James saying when he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead? Doesn't that at face value seem like a direct contradiction? And this is one of the reasons that the early reformers, specifically Luther, didn't like it because he was saying you're saved by faith alone, not by any other thing that you add to it which is true, okay? So let's, let's just keep that in mind. What we are not saying 
in any way is that faith plus anything equals salvation. That is what we are not saying, and that is not what James is saying. It's not faith plus anything else. We are saved by faith alone. But the other motto that the reformers would have used, we'll talk about here in just a minute after you wrestle just a little bit, all right? Because what we want to do is now that we've gotten through what it doesn't mean, and we're going to dismiss that formula, faith plus works equals salvation, that's false. Now, determine what it does mean. And this is where we get into our practice using our reference tools, okay? So the goal is to produce a one-sentence interpretation using the resources, uh, spending 20 minutes with two resource sets, 10 minutes each. What I need you to do is everybody, every table, put a check next to the two that you want to wrestle with. We, can't, we don't have a lot of time to debate this, so we've got to come up with it relatively quick. You've had them. You've got them to consider. Put a check next to the two that your table is going to wrestle with, and then send a representative up here, and we'll make sure that they get the two. Take them back to your table, and you've got 20 minutes tops for you to wrestle with both resources. Does that make sense? All right. They should be together. Yep, so one, two, and three. Yep, mm -hmm. yep, they should be together by paperclip. Hey. All right, let's uh, begin to wrap it up, and we'll have our seats, have our opinions formed. Minimize our heresy. Does anybody want to volunteer to share their quick one-sentence interpretation of the text? Someone pointed over here. He says, works are the result of true faith in Jesus Christ. That's your interpretation? Okay, good. I think that's a good one. What's, any applications you guys jotted down? Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting idea. And that's, it, it, gets, it gets tough, right? Because what we don't want to turn into is like that we've got some sort of gauge that we're able to do a bunch of fruit checking. There's nowhere in the scripture does it say that we can go around and say, hey, you've got to have this many good works or this kind of good works or you've got to abstain from sin for this long or you can't ever commit this sin or you proved you weren't saved, right? It, is, it isn't any of that, but we've got to be careful. But absolutely, I agree, the scripture says that, that, that you've got to test things, and there is a testing by fruit. And in this case, um, I would argue that I agree with you that if you claim to be a Christian, yet you live your whole life with absolutely no change from when you were unconverted, then that would be a problem, right? So we can't say that there's got to be X amount of whatever things, but there, as, as the Baptist faith and message says it, that regeneration, which is a work of the Holy Spirit brought on by the grace of God, creates a new creature, right? You get a new heart. And so there should, be, there should be a difference. What is that difference? Can you identify it? It's very difficult. One of the things that I love that the reformers said, as they struggled through this, they said, we are saved by faith alone. But then they said, but not by a faith that is alone. You're not saved by your works, but your works will produce, be, be a production of your saving faith. Um, and that's, that's the debate, right? And we've had a plenty of good conversations around the tables. Um, I would argue that sanctification is not an option. 
I would argue that the scripture is clear that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4 talks about that you should put off the old man and put on the new, which was created in the image of God and his holiness and righteousness. So there's, there's definitely an idea that there should be a change. But here's the problem. It will be different for every single person. That, that trend line, as we've talked about, when we talk about sanctification, if I got saved here, and here's time, this is T, there will be variances as we increase in holiness. And there absolutely may be somebody else who's doing this, and our job is not to compare them to them or us to somebody else. Our job is to compare ourselves to our unconverted selves, for one, and two, absolutely see that there's a trend line that we are heading more and more towards Christ-likeness because it's not our work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit who's renewing us, who's making us new, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And so the general nature of the Christian faith is that you should see gradual growth in holiness. No one has ever gotten saved and then right here, done. That doesn't happen. And anyone who does say it, uh, they, they, I think they are missing it because what actually happens is that we will continue this trend all through our lives until we are glorified. And then we're done. We're done with this fight against sin. Anybody else have an uh, interpretation that they want to share? She said, people can see her good works, but her salvation is based on her faith alone, right? Is that what you said? Yep, 100% agree with that. Did you guys have any, did you come up with any applications for it? Okay, yeah, so I actually would agree with that statement. So she said that this, this passage is not to prove that we are saved, but it is a, manifest, a visible manifestation of our salvation. Here's the only place I would push back is that we have to ask the question, with this trend line, is sanctification optional? And, that, and there, there, is a, there is a theological debate out there, uh, and there's, there's two groups. One is there's a perfectionist group, and there's also an antinomian group. The perfectionist would argue that you can achieve perfection this side of heaven. All you gotta do is try hard, do some things, and you can be perfected. Uh, Watchman Nee, there's some other people who believe that, I, I, completely disagree with that. There's an antinomian group who says that absolutely all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and then live any way you want to. Antinomian, uh, that you are against the law, you are a law unto yourself, you can live completely autonomously. And I don't think anyone in the room would agree with either one of those, right? So what we have to do is struggle with the balance is, who is doing the work? Because Clearly, Scripture says that any good work that we do is not a byproduct of ourselves, but is a work of the Holy Spirit who is doing this in us, both to will and to work according to God's good pleasure. So any good work you do do isn't from you anyways, right? So you can't take the credit for it anyways. But the beauty is, is that if you are regenerated, if you are born from above, you, have a new cre- you are a new creation in Christ and that means that there should be a difference between your converted self and your unconverted self. Um, but there's a lot, a, lot, a lot of different nuances that we could go into. Anybody else have any other uh, application or comments or questions on this topic? All right. So it's really important to get into the weeds of what is faith. Uh, and, and true saving faith uh, is not simply intellectual assent alone, believing the right facts does not save you. Trusting in the work of Christ is what saves you. Yes? Okay, yes. Yeah. But you wouldn't argue that you would lose your salvation, though, right? So, yeah, see, and, that, and, that, and we've got to be careful about that, too, because there can be absolutely times when we grieve the Holy Spirit and we live in a way and it looks nothing like a follower of Christ. That doesn't mean in that moment now we've lost our salvation. Um, there absolutely can be some valleys, some very dark times. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's a whole nother denomination if you believe that, right? So uh, we, have to, we have to believe that we are saved by the work of Christ, not our works. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you, I think you're right. She said it's, it's a good time to take that personal inventory, less about looking at other people's, which would be a different interpretation. Uh, they, they, Stacy says that it, it is a good thing for to us to see this as a external manifestation of our faith. Um, I think there's room for both of those to live there, but certainly I would agree that, that, that this is absolutely pointing to are you checking up on your own life? Are you working out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Are you walking in a manner that is worthy of your calling? Those are, those are tough things to struggle with. So we've got to get out of here. I wish we could stay here and debate this all night. Um, I hope that this has been an enjoyable study. I hope you've learned some new things, some new ways um, to look at the Word of God. And I absolutely encourage you, don't let this end here. Continue to dive into the Word, slow down, and ask God to help you understand it and apply it in your life. So let's pray and we'll get out of here. Thank you, Father, for your Word. I thank you that it is so pure. It is so true. And Father, you alone are the author of our salvation. We trust in the work of Christ for our justification. I thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit who brings us from death to life. And Father, I thank you for your word that changes our hearts. And I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that continues the good work that began. So Father, I pray for that, for this room. I pray for the things that we've discussed, the things that we've learned. I pray, Father, that they will be fruitful to us as we grow in our knowledge of you and our commitment to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.